So, Franz, Alan, questions get us started today. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Alan. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is flying. Expand yeah. on it. Why flying? I mean, beyond the obvious, it would be sick. <laughs> flying for commute or flying for pleasure? <laughs> both, Franz, both. <laughs> I mean, where should I start? Like, I hate traffic. That's uh, one thing. Second, I mean, it would just be amazing to get somewhere super fast. Third, like, you could just lift up and just, like, observe things differently it would give you literally a different perspective on life um so i think these three are top three reasons some very good reasons um franz <laughs> yeah if you could have any superpower not flying uh i mean that was my that that's where my question actually came from because mine would be teleportation Ooh, but this okay. is more like well if you fly then this is more for pleasure right i've i mm. there would also be an upside in being able to fly would be nice but teleportation has the commute without the flight so it's just like yeah straight there oh, and i talked about this apparently actually i think about this a lot i even have made up some rules uh together with my girlfriend on teleportation because it can also okay. get boring like it doesn't mean anything anymore to be in a certain place if teleportation was free and readily available so there is all right. these rules around the world of teleportation. If you want to learn more about that, DM me. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I I think give us give us the the short give us one of the rules at least. What's yeah. the main rule? People uh, two per month, max two per month. Yes. Okay. So it's still a scarce resource. Um, yeah. They can you can basically save them up, and miners are free. <laughs> 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 you can always say you're them. not gonna that's that's a travel policy i do love um how organized this all sounds friends yeah. I, I hate to lean on the cultural stereotypes but um, it's very efficient form of travel and there are rules so um yeah excellent stuff <laughs> what about you tom well i mean i guess fl flying was mine um uh the one that i really wanted to go for i think i would go with time travel which, you know, in the same kind of sphere, I guess, uh, particularly the teleportation. I watched the film Tenet last week and it blew my tiny little mind. Um, but it really got me thinking about how nuts kind of the concepts of time travel and the effects you could have and the, the consequences of being able to do that are. Um, and, you know, what, what would I do to try and change the course of time? Probably nothing terribly interesting. Um, so going back or going forward, where would you go? I'd go forward sounds terrifying. So I think I would avoid that. Um, I think I'd go back to some some iconic periods and try and not mess with anything too much, having watched Tenet. So, <laughs> and Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey or Excellent Adventure, whichever one it is, mm. <laughs> which is more on my level than Tenet, to be fair. <laughs> um, but I think in this episode, we're going to do a little bit of time traveling. We are. Right? Thanks for bringing, bringing us back, back to on point. Bring us 1939, back. I think so, something like that. Very good. So um, <laughs> you might be wondering why we're talking about uh, superpowers. It's because today is all about superheroes and a real superhero of the cinematic entertainment world, which is Marvel. Um, 
so yeah, we are going to be diving deep, tearing down as we always do, um, bit of the background, the strategy, the threats, opportunities of Marvel. And I would say more specifically, I think it's fair to say, um, Alan and friends, um, this is more a focus on the Marvel cinematic universe um, rather than the comic books. They are obviously part of the story that we will touch on, but really where it's become such a compelling and interesting business case and has kind of seemingly taken over the world of entertainment um, is through cinema and television. Um, so that is that is going to be our main focus yeah. for today. I will also pack a little bit of comic so, stuff in there and company history before that. But yeah, it gets yeah. really interesting um, around. Where it gets juicy is uh, Iron Man onwards, right? <laughs> yeah, and also Correct. what we them to do. Yeah, that. also numbers-wise. I, I think even the years before that are super, super interesting. So that's where I'm going to... Oh, France. Well, I, I look so. forward to... I look forward to getting to that, definitely, because I actually, I preferred some of the older Marvel films, but I'll, I'll come on to that, my preferences, uh, a little later. So if you've been under a rock for, I don't know, since the 1930s, <laughs> then you, you've definitely heard of some of the uh, Marvel world superheroes. Now, I'm going to caveat this whole episode with, I'm not a Marvel person, and I'm really sorry if I get some of this wrong or upset um, the Marvel stands. Um, I'm really worried that I'm going to drop in some characters that are like DC or something else. But but the big, the heavy hitters, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Black Panther. You've probably heard of a whole bunch of those. There's a ton more which have been explored in enormous detail in the cinematic universe. And these have been around now for so long, since the like mid 20th century. And it seems crazy to me that they're still compelling and entertaining all these years on. You think about entertainment from that era, it, it doesn't tend to translate quite so well um, in, the, in the 2020s as it might have nearly 100 years ago. But they've been reinvented and those stories still hold true. Um, so these characters started on paper, comic books, um, and that, that was where they lived and thrived for a very long time. But it, <laughs> yeah. And their potential in film was untapped for such a long time, right? Yeah, and Friends, I think also the, the biggest ones are, um, let's say, the first superhero movies. I don't know how pleasant they are to watch, to be honest. I'm going to touch on this too. I think superhero movies only became um, enjoyable with a certain tech in place. Yeah. So yeah, I, some of the was... initial... Sorry, go on. Some of the initial um, early um, interpretations on film do not stand up well. You're absolutely right, Franz. The technology wasn't there to really bring them to life in the most yeah. compelling way. But you're going you're gonna to touch on that, uh, I think, in a lot more detail later yeah. about what an important investment and um, technology move that was. Um, so, yeah, these characters remain popular on paper for decades, but really it was... You know, well, Franz seems to think 90s onwards. Um, in my head, it was like Iron Man onwards. The rest is sort of cinematic history from that period onwards. Um, and this would turn out to be the kind of genesis period of what's an incredible creative business empire. And it's that creative element as well that I think makes it particularly fascinating from a sort of design and tech perspective, which we will get into. Um, and like we said, that's really the focus today. Uh, the 
Marvel Cinematic Universe or MCU, as people like to to call it. And I think just to save ourselves a, f- a bit of time today, we'll probably use MCU uh, <laughs> a bit more regularly. Um, and that's become a popular term for fans to use to describe the films, the universe. And we'll dive into this because that strategy to develop this sort of overarching narrative including characters from across the Marvel world throughout all the films, throughout all these phases, really became a sort of strategic masterstroke that we're going to dive into. Um, mm-hmm. And that was in the plan. Uh, and that plan has been executed pretty pretty well. Um, so the MCU over the subsequent years from the kind of establishment of what we see today as the Marvel Studios has transformed into this sort of blueprint for branding, marketing, and franchise building in the entertainment industry. I don't think there's anything that quite compares with its with its scale and reach. But before we get into that, I've already asked you what your favourite superpower would be. Any favourite superheroes? And I'm going to go to Franz first on this one. I am also not a too big um, aficionado of superheroes but i just have to say that i love deadpool deadpool that's a marvel one right (laughs) i know it is i know it is i'm joking what did you like about deadpool i've got to say it didn't didn't land with me um the imperfection of this uh person (laughs) like being a hero but also not being a hero at all um and i think they Mm did it with Deadpool to the max, right? So that's also one decision that made Marvel super successful, um, creating these characters that are not superheroes in the traditional sense, like um, Superman, this heroic, perfect man with superpowers, doing only good for the world, but actually creating characters that have flaws, that are weirdos, that are arguing. Um, And I think they basically brought this concept to an extreme with Deadpool being basically more a villain than a hero almost, uh, but still being the hero. So this is why I liked it. You're absolutely right, Franz. Yeah, those imperfect, those flawed characters is where they started to really resonate with people with Fantastic Four, which I'll touch on in a bit. Um, but yeah, so Deadpool for Franz. Alan, any any favourites? Have you got like a Superman top underneath there? Are you gonna? No, no. <laughs> that. No, no. I mean, I think my favorite superhero. Many people don't even consider a superhero, like Neo from the Matrix. Oh, okay. I would go with yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that does feel. Like I've it. always been more towards like the let's call it realistic superheroes yeah. and less. Real. I mean, I both are not realistic, obviously, but just like the way Matrix is done. It just speaks a little bit more to my taste of action slash superhero movies. Um, but if I would have to like choose from the Marvel universe, probably the only one that I even like have watched <laughs> is like Spider-Man. So then I would go with Spider-Man. But yeah, Neo is my choice. Neo, never, I guess this is showing my naivety in that world. I'm not imaginative enough. Um, but yeah, hadn't really considered him a superhero, but you're right. And that is a film I need to rewatch. Soon. I know, Kung Fu. Yeah. <laughs> that moment bought me. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I remember seeing that in cinema when I was like 17, 16. And just, uh, just like, blew my mind. away. So yeah. good. Um, I'm the same. I think we, it all sounds like we're not big superhero movie guys, which is um, going to make for an interesting objective conversation today. For me, you came it's, here a, for it's a DC like, one. If you, I just, oh, sorry, you were just sharing your own, your 
your favorite superhero? I was, but you go, friends. I'll come back to me. Now, I just wanted to say that uh, I know that they're like, this is an industry with super fans, right? So you have people yeah. who collect, who cosplay, who are like super bought into this. Um, pretty much like maybe sports. You could compare it from a level mm. of uh, people being into this topic. So if you came here to listen to... Um, let's say, nuanced discussions about superhero characters, then <laughs> that's going to be disappointing. That's going to be disappointing other one hour and something. But if you're here to think about how uh, business of Marvel actually looks like, then you came to the right place. Um, yeah, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and that's what I find interesting about this. Like We chose this topic knowingly that none of us is like a huge not fan but like we're, we're not into it as deeply as some other people are but we are super interested in like the business side of it and there is a lot to uncover really interesting oh, from the business perspective big time yeah uh, and if i mean let's i don't know what your research um there's a there's a lot of podcasts and videos out there if you want to go nerdy on marvel so <laughs> fill your boots um but yeah today we're going on the business side um yeah my my i'm again not not a big superhero person, but Batman for me, obviously in a different universe. Um, that's so cliche, isn't it? It's like if you don't really like superhero films, it tends to be Batman. Um, I don't know something about the more realistic bit. To like you said, Alan, he doesn't feel supernatural. Um, he's a bit dark and moody. I kind of like that. Um, of the Marvel films I have seen, I really enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy. Probably. Because of the humor and the, the the silliness and the soundtrack, but um, yeah, I feel like that's a very cliche answer that people who don't really like Marvel give Batman and Guardians. So. Yeah, we gave the boring <laughs> answers. Yeah. So, but where did it all come from? So we're going to go back in time, and I want you to both imagine yourselves in 1930s New York. Um, and the 1930s New York is quite a contrast between sort of resilience and struggle. Like, you know, Great Depression is still sort of casting a shadow. But as always in New York City, there's optimism. Um, skyscrapers popping up everywhere, piercing the horizon. The streets are sounding a honking of Model T Fords. Are you there, chaps? Can you, you know, imagine yourselves? Because we we're, we, we're about to go up to the offices of 330 West, 42nd Street. Um, and that is where the... Um, origin of what would become marvel started in 1939 by a chap called martin goodman uh, as timely comics now martin goodman had already started to build a bit of a publishing empire um he was in the sort of pulp fiction um business uh and don't know if either of you familiar with kind of what that means um i'm familiar with the movie <laughs> with the, the, the uh, movie <laughs> it was these comics um these kind of stories that were printed on really cheap um cheap paper which is kind of the pulp element of it and it was these kind of um bit of romance bit of action um there was illustration in there but they were very cheap kind of throwaway um publications and he had built something of a reputation and business in that area and um he had uh started to expand that and in 1939 would start what would become marvel comics and he, he actually released an issue called 
um, the Marvel, the Marvel comics. And at the same time as this was being launched, he had taken on an employee that you may have heard of, um, known as Stanley Lieber, but you probably know him by another name. Either of you hazard a guess who that might be? Stanley. 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 Um, who even myself as a not much of a comic book guy knows the kind of legend, the guy that invented these characters that become so enormous and actually ended up camo- cameoing in most of the movies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was office assistant, right? His he was, friends. Assistant. Yeah. Yeah. What a story of like starting at the bottom, <laughs> you know? So like Martin said to him, Stanley, welcome to Timely, but you're starting with the basics. Fill these ink wells assist the artists, learn the ropes. Um, he did not come in as this like creative director, creative genius. He was he was a, a runner and kind of admin and doing all the the kind of shitty jobs to to keep things going. No doubt an interesting place to be, but a long way from where he ended up um, being. Um, so 1940s kind of um, kicks in and Stan is starting to get a bit more influence in this very small company um, and had started to kind of put his mark on some of the characters like Captain America. He felt like that needed a kind of refreshing up. So he thought to himself, what if um, Captain America could kind of um, impose himself on what was happening in the war at the time? And he sort of gave him this signature shield that would help him, you know, fight the Nazis and stuff like that. And he started to just introduce these little extra elements, bring it into kind of um, what was going on in the world at the time, make it a little more relatable. And his influence in these areas would kind of slowly grow over time. Um, And um, yeah, his influence just continues to grow and grow. So there came a point in the late 40s where um, Martin Goodman was like, superheroes are not so much the thing at the moment we need to sort of diversify can you help us adapt and although maybe it wasn't the direction that he absolutely wanted to go in stanley was one of these people who absolutely believed in the leader and believed in adapting and so went through this process of kind of diversifying a little bit into like romance and westing and horror and stuff like that because he had this ethos stanley of storytelling is storytelling um if you can do it well you can do it across genres but ultimately, they would return to superheroes. And this is where Stanley had his big break, big breakthrough that we've already touched on. Um, their rivals, DC, had had real success with the Justice League, with this mm. kind of group of superheroes. And Stan was thinking, what if our heroes were like that? We needed something new to rival the Justice, Justice League. But what if they were different? Not these gods, but they were flawed, and it was about the people. And you've already talked about this, Franz. Marvel kind of really started to kick on in 1964 with the release of the Fantastic Four, these relatable, imperfect characters um, that just kind of really transformed their fortunes. So um, fast forward to this kind of late 60s, um, and Stan says to Jack Kirby, Jack, I've got this idea. It's this sort of teen superhero with no sidekick, which was unusual, but he's got real problems. He's a kid. He's he's kind of had this superpower thrust upon him. We'll call him Spider-Man. Um, and they really made this story about so just as much about the man as the kind of spider within it. 
And that really connected with not just kind of comic book fans for, for a long time, but with a younger audience as well who kind of see themselves in Peter Parker. So, you know, a real plotted story there. Um, and But Stanley was still not having that enormous... He was starting to have increased influence, but it was only really... Um, when a Jack, an artist called Jack Kirby came in, that the dream team came together. And for me, they feel a little bit like the sort of Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive sort of combination, <laughs> the sort of visionary person in Stan with the creative ideas and everything. But then the, the man that can kind of bring it to life um, has the artistic talent, the creative talent. Um, and that combination ended up being just completely formidable. Um but it was still relatively small. But ultimately, they would prove their worth. You know, the Fantastic Four did really well. And the Marvel board in 1972 said, Stan, we need you at the top. You've proven yourself, your vision, your voice. They've defined us. How do you fancy taking the reins? So he would ultimately become publisher and editorial director. Um, and he was like, if it's good for Marvel, I'm in. What an absolute servant of the organisation. So, you know... This was a, a decades-long story, um, but quite an inspiring one that I was not familiar with. I thought Stan Lee was this kind of guy who came in and was just making these characters up from day one and was kind of brought mm. in to do that, mm. but no, from the bottom to the top. A superhero story in itself, from a runner to the CEO. Was he a CEO, did you say? or No, he came, he came, he came like the editorial director. He wasn't CEO, right. but... Certainly from where he was, filling up in inkwells and probably yeah. running out to get people packets of cigarettes and stuff. <laughs> um, quite quite a uh, quite a rise. But yeah. a rise that took time, but he trusted his leadership. He believed in the vision of the company. And thankfully he did, because they would not be the organization they are now um, without that. Yeah. And one of the reoccurring themes in like these stories is our heroes superheroes in these stories uh always find a way to find an interesting zach mm. so everybody else is zigging and then they find a way to zach and in this case it was like realizing that superheroes can be flawed shouldn't be flawed should be more human so it's easier to relate to them and yeah. it sounds again like such a simple such a small zach but it's huge it has like a knockoff effect on basically how you draw how you build a character how you sell the merchandise and everything in between totally and i've no doubt we're gonna you know, get into that strategic decision it wasn't really a strategic decision it was a storytelling decision that turned yeah. out to be a really canny strategic move which I'm, I'm i'm sure we will get into the detail of um but you know fast forward to the early 2000s marvel was struggling we will get into that in a bit that's where we'll pick up the story again soon but first i want to kind of go why designers? Why why might designers find this story quite compelling? Find find Marvel an interesting case study, um, and um, very often it's completely clear. It's like there's something around you know uh, brand quality or brand execution, um, all that all that kind of stuff. I think it's it's slightly more um, niche with this one. Um, I think designers like anyone can just enjoy the great storytelling and the great creativity. But I think there are a few elements to how um, the MCU has sort of executed um, its strategy and brought these films to life that I think are worth kind of pulling out. 
first of those is the sort of visual design, the aesthetics. Um, it's just incredibly unified. And when they land on a creative direction, the execution is just unreal. So each film has its kind of unique visual language. Um, if you compare like um, Wakanda, which is this sort of futuristic area uh, in Black Panther to the sort of retro look of Captain America, it's done in such a coherent um, sort of together um, polished way that is that is really spot on. You don't see that attention to detail um, terribly often. Um, and that leads me into this sort of brand consistency. Despite the fact that these span multiple films, directors and tones, there's a sort of consistent brand identity to the whole arc of these stories. Um, and I think designers can appreciate um, the challenge of doing that, making each film feel distinct while still being part of the larger whole. I found that very challenging when I'm working on something like maybe a design system or um, say a brand that has multiple sub brands. You want it to feel like they're all connected in some way, but they need that unique uniqueness. That is incredibly challenging. On In digital, I can't imagine how you start to address that in film and, and they have managed to do that which is really inspiring uh, and then you have all the technology the motion graphics and things like that the set design and the one that really got me when i was looking into this and the, the, i was not aware of this um is the kind of color theory um that um marvel bring to it so many mcu movies employ very specific color palettes to convey mood and character and thematic elements so for example the color green in thor ragnarok 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 sorry um is primarily associated with his character loki and contrasts really sharply with this kind of red film used for the primary uh, antagonist um i think it's pronounced hela or hela and Having looked at a few clips, you see that they kind of really lean into that tone and color. Um, and for many of us, we would, wouldn't even notice that. But when you realize the attention to detail and how that is really helping you understand the character, um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. I had no idea that that was kind of part of how they um, thought about the design. And then, of course, there's a sort of collaborative creativity. <clears throat> I cannot imagine how you um, sort of get a team as vast array of artists writers directors and designers to all kind of coalesce around a vision around a project like that and deliver it um over such long time periods uh, and across films as well it's completely inspiring to me I, I just tip my hat to anyone who can kind of see that vision and execute it um so th that's it for me it's just a few reasons why beyond the fact that the, these films are no doubt entertaining and the storytelling is fantastic, that there is this kind of um, next level of design sensibility that I think um, I hadn't appreciated until now. Um, yeah. As a part of my research, I also found like a, I believe it was a Harvard Business School video where they were researcher who, researchers who analyzed exactly this thing. So how does Marvel succeed in making this thing look um unified even though it's always uh different and they were basically talking about they had like a, this graph of how they are purposefully basically trying to break from something that's expected and that's kind of the common threat in the marvel movies is this like unexpected 
part to it. It's like breaking the norm. And it's that's a really thin line between breaking a norm and still being popular because you can go too far with it. Mm-hmm. But they are really dancing on this edge nicely, always trying to find a way to make it slightly different. And uh, I even learned that they use like different uh directors for each movie and usually these directors are not like the most famous directors out there but are really have a really specific taste really specific look and feel but somehow they still manage to incorporate these directors into the marvel look and feel yeah i was listening to um a podcast where they're talking about um i can't can't remember who it was with but talking about bringing in john favreau to direct iron man and it would have been an easy decision to find a director who had done superhero films in the past who had done action films but they sort of knew look internally we've got we, we kind of know how to do that we, we understand hmm. um we understand how to do action we understand how to present our characters we have the visual language and everything we need a really good storyteller we need someone with humor um we need someone who can be creative with budget as well because it was quite low budget comparatively that first one so you're absolutely right friends the story of how they've selected these directors and then to my point about consistency managed to have this kind of consistent delivery and way of doing things even though directors have changed i i just find it fascinating and inspiring cool um, yeah, way so to go, yes. right? From yeah. 1939 mm. to um, Cinematic Universe right now. And well, Tom, you already gave us a little bit of an overview of how the company came to be. I will not tell you the same, but I will still start in the same year. I'll go back to the picture you painted from New York um, and talk again about Martin Goodman, who, yeah, as you said, created or founded Timely. The interesting thing here for me was that this person was a publisher. So he went into comic books because he thought this was a business completely without IP. So he didn't have a story. He didn't have comic book writers. He actually made a deal with a company called Funnies.inc. Funnily, it's called Funnies.inc. And this is basically a... Very good. Um, <laughs> Um, it was a collective of comic writers and they made a deal. They said, well, we have the IP, we have characters, we have stories, but we don't have distribution. Goodman, on the other hand, he has distribution, he's a publisher, uh, but he needed the stories. So this is how this company came to be, that he actually founded Timely Productions, Timely Comics, with no production itself. Like He didn't have production of um, content, he only had I mean, only he had the link to the market. He was the publisher. I want you to keep this in mind because this is a recurring theme of what is the important thing in the industry. Is it IP or is it actually uh, access to market and distribution? Because that's going to change throughout the story of Marvel several times because sometimes they will have this and they will not have the other thing. (laughs) Sometimes they will have seems to have both, then they will maybe get a partner who has it better. So that's just a few spoilers of what's going to happen in the next few uh, minutes, tens minutes. Uh, let's see how long it's going to take to talk to walk you through uh, some business decisions that they took. But yeah, let's yeah keep an eye on IP versus um, distribution. 
that's going to be the recurring theme. Alrighty, so this is how it started, right? Timely production. Yes, the first comic was named Marvel Comic Number One, but Marvel disappeared uh, again as a brand name. The company was not um, called Timely. Also, the comics were not really named uh, Marvel. It was more about the uh, superheroes, and we already talked about this uh, big market increase, the big success in the war era where superheroes were just exactly what people needed. Um, they created Captain America, actually one that was created then within the company. So that was the first one where they actually also had IP created within, the own, uh, within their own company. And uh, that was a huge success for them. Um, interestingly, because Captain America actually punched Adolf Hitler in the face even before um, the US joined the world war ii so you can see that um you see you know these running gags of how the simpsons um how the simpsons would actually uh predict something that would happen in the future so marvel did this already uh mm -hmm. in the 40s so this is maybe this magic of um animated stuff that there are some creative minds behind that who think of what could happen and sometimes they're actually right and it seems like they're predicting the future so yeah ip creation was now integrated also in the company um, and this worked quite well for a while as you said then after that uh, there was a little bit of a downturn in the 1950s superheroes weren't that important anymore and the post-war um, era um, they went a little bit into different genres uh, they also had an interesting conflict with parents uh, so apparently yeah. parents of the US um, have a big, pretty big lobby that is strong enough to almost censor um, comic yeah, books. Yeah, basically ban. Yeah, yeah, almost. So comic books were sold at groceries, which is where also parents would uh, buy. So there weren't comic book stores back then. And they would actually go as far as saying we will boycott any grocery store that would sell also comic books. It was so big. This issue was so big that even U.S. Congress was discussing um, regulations on the comic books. Yeah, um, and the reason was that uh, parents had a feeling that kids reading these comic books actually then became more aggressive. They basically the same like reasons. rationale and reasons you hear that parents dislike gaming today, like computer games. Yeah. So it's just comics was the first precursor of the gaming. Yeah. The reason why I'm bringing this even up, apart from it being a nice story that parents rage out and then um, apparently, um, yeah, you even get the power of censorship. Um, but what they did was, or what the whole comic book industry did, is that they created their own comics code authority. So instead of getting um, censored, they created their own um, comic code authority, which would basically approve certain stamps approve certain standards or that this book would have this comic book would have uh, would meet certain standards and then it would be accepted from these shops again um yes they basically saved their market but at the same time they also kind of destroyed their market to be awesome uh, to be honest because um what became clear more and more is that comic books is not only something that children read comic books is something that adults loved and they loved it exactly for their edgy content and now 
that you had this comic code authority, which basically would have to water down stories, would have to make sure that uh, language is actually, yeah, that they all watch a language. All these uh, stories got bland and sales took a big hit for the whole industry. So um, this is actually exactly when now Stan Lee enters the whole thing. I mean, we know that he entered the whole thing already in 1939 uh, when he was the office assistant, but now he got in charge by the early 1960s. Um, so 1961, we had this um, actual branding of Marvel. This was when they actually first decided to use the name Marvel. And that's also when um, Stan Lee really got into the um, into the creative lead of the company with, as you said, created Fantastic Four in 1961 together with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditka. I think the second person created the X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, uh, Black Widow, the Avengers, Silver Servers, Doctor Strange. So now you can see that all of these characters, all of this IP was created um, in the 60s and in the 70s. So this was a powerhouse of storytelling and of creating of characters. Um, and now you can see that, well, it seems like they, when you think of strategic activities, they went into over-investing, maybe, <laughs> and we'll see later, uh, went into over-investing uh, into production and into R&D, but maybe not having as big of an eye um, with the um, on the distribution, but well, just in general, um, their business went well. They had these new characters. Their new characters were much more relatable. Um, they were doing um, they were doing good on the market, um, and this is actually now it can be seen as the foundation of Marvel of how it is today, right? This universe that they have created. Um, and with this tailwind, um, the company went on expansion and diversification path. So this came hand in hand also with a change in ownership. 1989, um, billionaire Ronald Perlman took over the company and notably, and maybe take this, uh, take a note of that, they, uh, he bought it for $82 million. Um, and officially created the Marvel Entertainment Group. And there is a very famous quote of him saying, Marvel is a mini Disney in terms of intellectual property. Disney has got much <laughs> more highly recognized characters and softer characters, whereas our characters are termed as action heroes. But at Marvel, we are now in the business of creating and marketing these characters. Mm, no spoilers, but yeah, that would that would end up being an interesting, interesting. Uh, one to reflect on. No what year was that, Franz? Yes, so eighty-two million. Eighty-two million what? in nineteen eighty-nine. Nineteen eighty-nine. Ah, okay. And was that hundred percent of the company, or? I think so. Yeah, because Goodman uh, actually yeah. sold the whole company to another company who only held the company for two years. I think. Uh, so I didn't want to go into the nitty-gritty details of that, but the most notably change actually came with the acquisition by Ronald um, Perlman, who mm -hmm. was now more focusing on uh, distribution again. Now we have almost like one and a half decades of 
production and distribution like it was through comic books. Um, and now we're actually going into more of a era of distribution again. So with this quote of saying, well, we're in the business of creation and I am pretty sure what he meant was marketing um, of characters. So he did say creation and marketing characters, but he was actually really focusing on marketing these characters. There was a big um, diversification going on. So in the early 90s, um, Marvel acquired other businesses and entered uh, various licensing agreements. So they went into merchandising, they went into toys, they bought a minority stake of a company called Toy Biz, and they also, part of this deal was a licensing, licensing agreement for toys. So Toy Biz would actually create um, action figures from their, uh, from their characters. And at the same time, they would buy 46% of their company. Uh, and they even diversified um, horizontally, which was done by a company, buying a company that was in the business of baseball cards, FLIR. So they bought another similar company, right? It's kind of in the realm. It's not, it's different, yes, but it's kind of a, a similar thing. It's a company that um, creates and produces sports cards that can be traded and were a huge collectible thing at this point in time. Did anybody, is anybody of you a collector? Like, I have been collected. Cards? Anything. Anything or baseball cards? Baseball cards. I don't know. Did you do stickers for FIFA World Cup? Yeah. Did you? Um, Panini stickers. Panini stickers, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I still have 2002 World Cup Panini uh, album filled, filled out, filled up. Yeah. What's the right word, Tom? Yeah, completed, filled, filled up. Yeah, if you completed, got, did you yeah. have to get on the black market to get some final um, stickers or did you just get like what do you mean black market so we had this like you know in school you could just swap oh, right is yeah. that what you mean or yeah, no no i mean like did you have to um you know go and buy buy uh, acquire your final price? cards somewhere else um no 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 um i was like th this age i had no money so we were basically just swapping with other kids yeah and then at a certain point yeah you would fill it out fill it complete it hopefully mm. I, I yeah, for me it was um like football cards and like uh we had this thing in the UK where at the World Cup they do these football coins and you would get them at the petrol station uh, you you'd go and push them in. I come from a family of collectors and I have sort of pushed back on it to be honest. I haven't got the space all the mm -hmm. time for having shit cluttering up my house. So no. <laughs> so follow up question. You know that you can do collect you can collect stuff for the pleasure of having it. But there is also collectors who do this for investment purposes, right? So I oh, know, yeah, buying yeah, sneakers yeah, yeah, for no thousands doubt. of euros um, that like collect them in a sense of, I think it's not pure investment. You need to be bought into this. There's always like a mix of emotional and financial uh, interest in there. Did mm -hmm. anybody go into that? Yeah. I think once you start seeing something more as, as an asset, though, I don't know, I feel like maybe you're losing the heart of what collecting is about. As someone who doesn't collect shit, <laughs> I'm just, I don't know, I have this purist <laughs> image of like people, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, the sneaker collecting bit, actually, that, that's probably the closest I've come to thinking, oh, I might cover, 
you know a few like nice nice sneakers but they take up too much space friends and they the the market is wild um but yeah you're right that seems to be the most contemporary one right that had a real boom uh, yeah. recently and i think new balance recently did like an x-men uh collaboration release which um mm-hmm. hideous <laughs> i mean we did have a collectible market that was quite big a year ago don't talk about nfts man <laughs> <laughs> next topic front okay so you know why i'm even bringing this up right do you know why i'm bringing it up no uh, you don't. I, no i, don't I mean i do i mean i can sort of see where you might go but um apparently and i was new to this as well there was a comic book bubble and there was a baseball card bubble Yes, and heard about this the baseball card one. was a huge reason for Marvel to go bankrupt. And I was like, no way, you can't tell me that. I mean, yes, a housing bubble, I get that. <laughs> I, I've heard about this. And yes, I've heard about people losing all their money or a lot of their money with NFTs. But comic book bubble? Seriously? So I read up about it and it actually works exactly like any other bubble. And that's what actually happened. But- so tell me, Franz, like, why, how doesn't a company that rides on the wave of the bubble profit from it? How did it go they bankrupt? They did profit on it immensely. Like, people would, in this era, in the 19th, go crazy about comic books. There would be comic book stores popping up. You would have, like, comic books, especially in the U.S., were crazy in the 90s. It got even so crazy that people were not only collecting them, but actually trading them. So there were issues sold for thousands of dollars. Well, this this is obviously great for for Marvel, but if you are Marvel, you you have the power to burst that bubble, which is exactly what happened. So there was a new issue of a comic book, everybody thought like this is going to be the next big shit that will have that will be worth a few thousand of dollars. Marvel would produce a lot of them. People would not, would not buy one, but maybe two or three of them because they thought they would be so um, they would be so um, valuable in the future. Yeah. Until everybody realized that everybody would have bought two or three copies of that, so it's not worth anything anymore and that was actually it sounds silly like when i explain it if it feels weird explaining it but apparently what happened is and please correct me if i understood this wrong apparently what happened is that this was a bubble that burst so all of a sudden people were like well if this is not worth anything what if my whole collection isn't worth anything nobody would trade anymore nobody would buy anything for um a thousand bucks anymore but the collectors would have already spent a few thousand bucks in their collection. So all of a sudden, sales of comic books would drop completely. So nobody would buy comic books anymore. And the growth Mm. was actually fueled by people buying not one comic book to read, but actually buying three comic books to keep them in an original packaging. And all of a sudden, this whole spiel is gone, which means you're not selling any comic books anymore because Mm. um, you inflated the market before and you planned with these figures, and all of a sudden, it's back to reality, the bubble burst, um, and your sales actually completely, yeah, um, yeah crash. 
And that does sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so inflated prices, inflated demand, um, and then a bubble burst. And the other thing was a little bit more, let's say, unfortunate and coincidental for them uh, because that was also very big. Um, so the market for collectibles was also very big for uh, baseball cards. And the Major League uh, Baseball actually went on a strike on that year. And again, I don't know anything about baseball and I don't know anything about this. Like I listened to some of the podcasts and people were describing this. Hey, yeah, I remember this. When I was small, there was this uh, strike. So excuse me if I don't know anything about this. I just know that this strike of the Major League Baseball also contributed towards uh, to the uh, baseball collectibles, baseball cards bubble to burst. And now imagine this. You as a company, you have... Um, taken on a lot of depth because what you thought would be now I have all these characters I want to monetize this now I want to focus on distribution so let me go into a licensing agreement with this company let me buy that company let me invest here so let me just take on debt because that's going to only be an upwards market so you have all these debt and all of a sudden it's not an upwards market anymore but there are two bubbles in two of your biggest markets that actually burst and all of a sudden, your sales um, plummet. And that's exactly what happens. And that's exactly what led to the bankruptcy of Marvel. So it was so close to us not even having um, Marvel Cinematic Universe at all. It didn't go fully bankrupt, right? They filed for bankruptcy, but then they got saved, right? Exactly. And you know by whom they got saved? Yeah, the very company they bought. Exactly. Toy, Toy Biz. Yeah, Toy Biz. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, no, I'm your father. No, you're my father. <laughs> um, yeah, that was funny when I read that. Exactly, yeah. They didn't go bankrupt. They filed for bankruptcy. Then they had another like debt shark trying to take them over. We're not going to go into that. But uh, all of a sudden, or eventually, uh, Toy Biz, the company that they had bought a few years back, 46%, I believe, um, and did the licensing deal on um, toys, they would actually come back and buy Marvel and would then um, combine the two businesses and only have a Marvel company, a Marvel company being merch, Marvel company being toys, and the Marvel company being studio. That's but the new thing, right? This Marvel company of studio is not the new thing. Because first, they didn't actually think about making movies. First, they thought about staying alive. <laughs> they actually really had to stay alive. So what's the easiest way to monetize IP? To license it? Exactly. So now we're back at this distribution versus IP. All of a sudden, so you started as only having distribution but no IP working together with this Funnies Inc. to get the content. Now you all of a sudden have this repository of awesome characters, but you don't have any money to produce anything. Your market that you're active is completely dead. What are you going to do? I mean, yes, you can sell toys, mm -hmm, but that's maybe not going to keep a whole company afloat. So what else are you going to do? Well, you take these um, characters, license them, license them out for other movies and that's exactly what happens so the first movies that you saw with uh marvel characters spider-man um x-men hulk 
there was not Marvel movies. Those were movies that were created by Sony, uh, by Fox, by Universal. Um, I, and maybe I'm wrong here, I think that even Men in Black was licensed from Marvel. So the first movies, they were kind of successes, but they were not done, done by Marvel. This was basically their first attempt at building a new company in an era where your old distribution channel, being comics, wouldn't work anymore. Read into this what you will, but um, the only film I've ever fallen asleep in the cinema to was <laughs> X-Men 2 when it was <laughs> it was a Sony one. Didn't do it for me. Needed, needed that sweet Marvel studio touch. <laughs> You know what was shocking to me when I looked into those deals? Mm -hmm. So as far as I understood, uh, understand these deals are like licensing in perpetuity, which means like these studios, Sony and so on, they hold like license for, as you mentioned, Spider-Man and the rest, like almost forever, you know? Yeah. Uh, that was necessary for them. And the business model and strategy behind this is, well, I have merch and I have the rights to that and I have toys and I have the rights to that. That only makes sense if I have somebody pushing this character yeah. into the world. Okay, so I cannot yeah. do this because I can't have I don't have a comic book market anymore. I cannot do this because well, I don't actually know how to make movies, but what's the best way to um push this out? Yeah, it's a movie. So you license this, you earn money yeah, from the marketing agreement. And then yeah. uh, you hope to actually make the money then from merch and, and toys, yeah. which is the things that they yeah. still owned. Exactly. Yeah. But still, I was like surprised because you do this deal and that's why Marvel can never do a Spider-Man movie. I mean, they could renegotiate maybe with Sony, but it's basically Sony's now owning in a way or has a license for the Spider-Man movie. So that's why you never... Also, when we're going to get to the finances, that's why Spider-Man is not like a movie that goes under Marvel's or Disney's uh, profit yeah. and loss statement. But more about it in a bit. Yeah, but that's uh, actually a really, really nice lead because, well, okay, you have now built a company that works like this, that you have um, IP over characters, you own fully by selling merch and selling toys and you own licensing fees by creating movies. And then you have the situation that you see that some of these movies are very, very successful. And at the same time, you see that some of these movies are crap. So you're actually in a company that has a big heritage of creating these characters and A, if it's done well, then another company makes the money um, and you can feel like, yeah, you don't feel great about that. Or the other opportunity is, or the other option is that um, the company you license this product to actually doesn't do well. It's not going to be a good movie. And you feel like they have screwed around with the character and damaged a very nice character because what you've done is you've licensed out the best of your best, right? You needed to stay afloat, yeah. so you took your top characters and licensed them to another company. And there, so I have some, I have some stats on this that might be interesting to put into perspective. So merchandising is less than ten percent, ten percent of the how much a yeah. certain movie is grossing, which means that if you are now Marvel in this case, and you look at a movie potentially making five hundred million, yeah. 
there's somebody, someone else is making much more, generating much more revenue than you are with your own IP. Yeah. And that's exactly what Dave Meisel thought. So Dave Meisel back then was the president and COO of Marvel Studios. So just as a reminder, Marvel Studios was not creating movies, but was licensing out characters to other movie studios. So Dave actually, he didn't like that. He was like, how can we leave all this uh, money on the table on the one hand side? And he said, how can we um, let other studios destroy the awesome characters that we have? So um, what he actually wanted to do is he wanted to make their own movies. He wanted to create the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, two problems at this point of time. First problem is um, Marvel only had tier two characters left back then because the top characters were already licensed out. So now Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, everything that we know now, it's now popular. But at this point in time, it was like, meh. It was a character in some comic from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So that wasn't too big, right? But still, um, yeah, it was there. There were still characters. Um, and the second problem was there was no money. You just went out of bankruptcy or on to a, from the brink of bankruptcy. And to keep yourself afloat, yeah, um, you sell toys and merch and license out, um, license out the characters. So this company was really not doing well. So what actually Dave was doing is that he first tried to convince the board and the board just said, well, Dave, there is no money. If you can find the money, you get the go. You can do, you can create an actual studio. So what Dave actually did is that he went to Merrill Lynch, a bank that would go bankrupt two years after the deal, but not because of this deal, but because of another financial crisis, another bubble that burst. So he approached Merrill Lynch and he said, look, let's do a deal. I have these characters and I want to create movies with these characters. And you can see that action hero movies are successful. Just look at Spider-Man. Just look at these other, our characters where other companies made a lot of money with that. So I need money for four movies and I would need about 300, uh, 525, $535 uh, million for that. Please. And, <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> and if that doesn't work, so if it works, you'll get your money back, obviously. So that was a loan. So you get your money back with interest. And if it doesn't work, you get the IP of these characters. <laughs> So imagine the only thing that you have left as a company's IP. You don't really have anything left when it comes to distribution because you have lost your distribution channels. Comics don't really work anymore. As you said, the revenue from merch and toys isn't as big. The only thing you have left is characters. Most of them, the best ones, you've already licensed out. So you have another few and now you're willing to bet them into an all or nothing deal. Either you make it work with the studio um, or you lose all of these characters. Mm. So you need to convince the board that this is a good idea. So maybe to the board, they've said, look, if we lose these four characters, 
that's fine. We have so many more. <laughs> we have like 500 characters and that's actually true. So at the point of um, acquisition, um, they had like 500 and something characters. So he would have to convince the board um, that these four characters aren't really uh, important. But at the same time, he had to convince Merrill Lynch that these four characters are the ones that will actually bring back the money. And basically, the rest is history. Um, they were actually able to close the deal. Um, and he got the money. And what came out of this is Iron Man in 2008. Iron Man was the first in-house Marvel movie, um, which was based on a character Iron Man that was far less popular than Spider-Man or X-Men at the time. Um, and the success didn't just prove that Dave's mm, hypothesis was right, but it also marked like the start of this Marvel Cinematic Universe that turned Marvel from this underdog uh, company that had like a weird list of characters into like the titan and the um big player in the um in the cinema world and just to provide some context so it costs around 118 do um, million dollars to produce iron man and it crossed almost 600 million dollars so yeah it it was a huge hit for marvel so if we compare that to the 535 uh, million that they um, got, this means that they were almost two thirds that they already were able to pay back with the it, with the first movie. It's a little bit more complicated, uh, but I'll get to this in the financial part because there's some more costs involved in this. But let's say that they definitely made some profit on this one, which showed promise. But nice yeah. one. Um, yeah, I mean. The story is almost um, over, but there is another era, right? So 2008 Iron Man movie. Um, now, all of a sudden, having both again. You have IP and great characters, and you have distribution. And now, all of a sudden, your merch, your, um, your toys, everything gets more valuable, right? You're basically just proving that um, superhero movies work and you can actually have big business with these characters. Um, and there was a big plan. There was a big plan of creating these four movies with the money from Merrill Lynch, but there was also this big plan of creating this um, yeah, Marvel's cinematic universe where these characters would actually, from one and another comic, would, be, would interact with each other. So there was this huge plan of what Marvel could be in future. Um, and... That was actually also noticed by another big body in the industry because in 2009, just one year later, after the first big success of their own film, Disney acquired Marvel for $4.2 So what Disney is, is an even bigger publisher if we just use the words again that we used in the last part of the um of the or in the first part of the con uh, of the podcast, right? So what Disney basically did is they would buy IP because the only way that Disney could still grow, they already had the uh, brand 
uh, they already had the distribution figured out. They knew how to make movies. So they had um, all of that figured out. What they didn't have is IP that would also grant them a new piece of the market. So when you think of uh, the quote that... Um, um, let me just look up his name. The uh, Ronald Perlman, who in 1989 bought um, Marvel, he said, well, we have characters that are more in a superhero uh, movie um, ballpark, and Disney is the um, company that has softer characters, and we are just the smaller version of Disney, also in a slightly different market when it comes to characters. But now they prove that they're actually a pretty big market when it comes to characters. They actually have a very big list of uh, characters and that's actually what Disney at this point in time didn't have because Disney at this point in time still owned more of the um, softer characters and they owned animation films over Pixar. But what they didn't have was this spectrum of superheroes, rough, edgy stuff. And that's what they now bought with Marvel. So in um, in practice, what they did is, yeah, getting more IP to, f to uh, fuel their flywheel, to fuel their distribution channels. And yeah, that is almost the end of the story. We have seen a lot of more big successes like the Hulk and Thor and Captain America and the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. But then lately... We have also seen movies that were not that well received by fans. So um, it seems that the fur at first Marvel's unique identity remained intact. Uh, and now people are more and more criticizing that it seems that they are prioritizing quantity over quality. Uh, maybe there is an influence by Disney, the thing that you always uh, discuss, right? When you have a takeover of a beloved um company and brand from a much bigger player you're always worried that this player will actually screw it up so um yeah that's maybe what's happening now uh maybe we're hearing more about the recent financial from financial from alan um and i'm really curious about that but just to sum this up when it comes to strategic decisions there are obviously some product strategy decisions that put Marvel ahead already when it comes back to like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? So with most notably Stan, Lee inter in, uh, Stan Lee's new interpretation of what superheroes are, right? Having these flawed individuals, that's obviously a big strategic, uh, a big product strategy decision, um, changing what a superhero actually is. Um, also pioneering this idea of this interconnected universe where all these characters would, um, from different comics, would actually be able to interact in another sequential uh, of the comic with each other, which was also an idea that wasn't um, that wasn't there before. But in my opinion, the biggest takeaways for me are timing and IP versus distribution. So I think timing was a huge um thing here if marvel would have started with superhero movies a few years earlier where there wasn't the opportunity of this tech that we currently have to create something that's truly unique and that's truly um that's truly 
let's say, also represents the quality of the character when it comes to um, bringing it to life, to execute it, I think it wouldn't have been such a success. They just, I don't know if they purposefully waited long enough, but it just um, the timing that made it actually really, really um, successful. And that is more a passive thing in my opinion, right? You either do something or not, but you maybe have the right timing. But what's really, really important here is this, um, let's say, balance of IP and distribution. And the shifts that this company under underwent when it comes to first having only distribution but no IP, then over-focusing maybe on IP, then pushing maybe too hard with distribution and going bankrupt, almost going bankrupt, then all of a sudden figuring out both um, with movies and um, and having great characters and eventually being bought up by a distribution powerhouse of um, Disney. So that's for me a super interesting one um, to just see how this company found all over and over again found ways to capitalize on the IP and find new ways with merge and toys and licensing characters when they didn't have another opportunity and then creating their own studio. It's a it's a story also of trying to find the best business model for your most important asset. So each company has a thing that makes them special, a capability, an asset. And I think here we have we see a company that has gone through many, many iterations of trying to find the best business model for its asset, which was in this case intellectual property of these characters. So as you said, they tried with comic books, which worked, but also wasn't like maybe what they were hoping for. Then they tried merchandise and the movies was the big thing that they could still try. And we've seen different, like we've seen also stories, like other stories of companies also trying to find different business models. So the one that comes to mind, like is Netflix. And also they initially had, they were in the business of renting out DVDs. So that was their core capability. And they took this, reimagined it, tried to apply a different business model, a business model that's much more scalable. And ultimately they ended up with a different result. Um, also on the topic of distribution front. So I think what's interesting is that the reason this made sense for Marvel and for Disney is because yeah, Marvel did kind of find distribution channels by um, becoming a, a studio or um, yeah, a studio basically. Uh, but Disney was just on another level. So they had distributions figured out for TV. So they basically own TV stations. They have ABC and ESPN. They uh, also have now streaming, obviously, which is another distribution channel you can easily use to distribute the content. They have theme parks. That's also a big one. So, um, you know, you have a kid who loves a Spider-Man. You can take them to the Disney World and they can see the Iron Man there. Um, the merchandise sales. I mean, obviously, uh, Marvel had merchandise sales before, but Disney is just on another level, like globally representative. So it was... It felt like at the time when the when when Disney acquired Marvel, four point two billion dollars was. Most people said this is too much. That it was just like there's no way this makes sense for Disney. But if you have this perspective in mind that oh we're just going to use our own distribution and our own flywheel to generate even more value with this IP, it just made a lot of sense. <laughs> 
And they just needed Marvel to prove that superhero is big box. Like that these kind of Mm. movies actually work, right? You had a few other hits and not so good hits from the, from the, from other studios like Universal and Fox and, um, and Sony. But Marvel actually showed that this is actually working. They have an engine to create these movies that actually draw people into cinemas. And just as a reminder, again, superhero movies, they weren't a big thing. You had these weird Superman movies. I still remember watching them when I was small. So this weirdly animated, like you watch them, you're not really sure what you're watching. I didn't enjoy it. But then when I first watched a superhero movie with this new tech, I was like, okay, that works for me. I can watch all of a sudden superhero movies. Before I was like, categorically, categorically, no, I can't do this because that's mm. weird. But with this new tech and with these new opportunities, um, all of a sudden you could watch them where like there was no cringe involved because everything was made just so well. And I think this tech made it um, attractive for the masses and Marvel actually proved that. And then it was a kind of a, um, I mean, in retrospect, every investment that worked out is a safe investment, but I see um, why they waited a little bit to see if the Marvel movies actually turned out to be a success and then actually bought it. Um, so Disney. Yeah, if you compare the old technology, you, you need to be able to suspend disbelief with something like a superhero film. And maybe at the time, the Christopher Reeve, like su- Superman films and that, People could to an extent, but it's not night and day now. I mean, I don't find those old ones compelling for the same reasons. So felt like it had to that the timing element, like you say, was so critical. Um the bit that I most admire about the story um is the trust in two people in particular, Stanley and David Meisel. I think both quite visionary and given an enormous amount of trust by the organization at critical points in their journey. Um, I don't think we would be discussing Marvel today if it weren't for those two people in particular. I think they had some sort of secret source and vision um, that's just been transformative. David Meisel is really fascinating. The fact that he was able to envisage this long arc um, with the MCU is is quite inspiring. And finally, the, you touched on this a lot, Franz, the fact that they were limited with these characters and had to start off with Iron Man. What they were able to do under, I guess, creative limitations. I often think it can bring out the best in you as a designer is, okay, we haven't got the best character in the world. We haven't got the most well-known character in the world. We haven't got the best budget going. Um, We've got time constrictions and things like that. To actually be able to um, craft something like Iron Man under those and make it a success really inspirational not working with always the you know working with spider-man from the get-go with all the technology and all the budget to make it work so listening to an interview with him on tim ferris where he was talking about actually if you watch iron man back it's a, a, a long period in the film before you get into any of the really juicy cgi and they had to get that storytelling really on point and then just use it at the right points. And I kind of think about design with that. It's like, where are you going to get the most bang for your buck with design? Think strategically about where it fits in the story of a product or a service. Um, yeah, I just found that a really inspiring way, a uh, really inspiring story that they were able to kick off this incredible journey with those constraints and that character. Um 
It's made me want to go back and watch Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember another company, product, that used the same playbook to this summer to reinvigorate their business and also brand? Mm. It was was huge. It feels like it one that we should know about. Neither. No, but give us a clue. You said, yeah, yeah, it's the same playbook used by another company. A business playbook playbook of of having an IP. So it's a playbook of having an IP and using it to produce movie. Um, And using it to produce a movie. Don't know. Barbie. Ah, of course, Barbie. Yeah. That's a good shout. 1.4 billion in in sales up until now. Pretty crazy. They did uh, partner up with Warner Bros. uh, But still, like, this is their attempt to also go from being just a toy to being uh, more of a content company. Um. But obviously, I had a look at some uh, financials and numbers. And in this case, I wasn't really just looking at Marvel as such, but I was just interested to understand how movies generally work, um, what is the split of the revenue, and what makes a successful movie and not. So maybe let's start with just production and cost in general. So you have production costs and you have marketing costs. So on average, the Marvel movie... Um, costs somewhere between, so the production budget is between 150 to 300 million dollars. By the way, that's, I mean, that's a huge number. I just can't believe that someone needs that much money to produce a movie. But at the same time, I understand why. (laughs) There's a lot of work involved still. So it's between 150 to, let's say, 300 million in production costs. And then usually we can just say, um one times more so basically double that uh to get a marketing cost so if i don't know a, a movie costs 200 produce there's also 200 million in marketing costs um and generally when you read this top line revenue for these movies so these movies don't get to keep all of that money so like when you sell let's say when you go and watch uh, Avengers in the US cinema, 50% of that goes to the studio and 50% um, keeps the theater. I mean, this 50, 60% varies depending on the location. Uh, it can be as low as 25% uh, if you are uh, showing this movie in China. Uh, but when you combine all of this together, there is this really interesting heuristic that people use in this industry to understand if a movie is profitable or not, which is, as a rule of thumb, the movie needs to make two and a half times more than it costs to produce to break even. So when you have a look at the production costs, if you multiply this with 2.5, then you get the full number of how much this money needs to make, this movie needs to make in order to break even. So if a movie costs $200 million to produce, it must generate $500 million in order to break even. In so do you want to know how many... In the revenue for the... So uh, this is the gross 
it's it's take the gross revenue um, because it oversimplifies things on both sides. So it just looks at the gross revenue of the of the sales of the tickets. Okay. So there are certain things that are not involved in on the cost side and on the revenue side. That's why it just uh, actually evens out on two point five. So, do you want to know how many of uh, Marvel movies since two thousand and eight actually crossed the two point five um, multiple of the production uh, budget? How, so up until twenty twenty three. How many are there? Um, Too many. <laughs> so in my spreadsheet, I have well, give me a second, thirty two. Thirty two. Yeah, I have 32 movies in this spreadsheet just uh, that I'm yeah, looking at right now. Surely not some of the, I mean... Like, are these yeah, all... Yeah, go on then, Alan. Yeah. Put us out of our misery. <laughs> uh, so, out of 32, 28 it's basically good. passed the threshold of 2.5 uh, multiple of revenue compared to the production cost. So, this is 88%. Break even, which is except. what's break even. So here we are talking about break even. That doesn't mean like even if we have twenty eight of these just breaking even, it's still not a good business. But it's a good business. What you're saying is that they didn't make losses with twenty eight of these. With four of them, they did. Make they made losses. profit with twenty eight of these. Two point right? five. Yeah. Right? So twenty eight yeah. out of thirty two were profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and only four were not profitable. And in a business that's driven by hits, that is a huge number. Yeah, um, I'd imagine the profit from the others evens out, eclipses any losses on those those four duds along the way. Yeah, I reckon so, I could probably guess what a few of those duds might be. Oh, actually. go ahead, go ahead. Don. I'm going to say um, Doctor Strange, maybe. Which one? No, no. Um, and, and this is coming from someone who knows next to nothing. I'm just basing it on like the ones that sort of got in my psyche as people moaning at me for not having seen yeah. um, Ant Man. Yeah, that- Ant Man, uh, Eternals. Eternals uh, were not profitable. Mm-hmm. Right, You're losing us, France. So Tom was uh, <laughs> Tom was guessing the four that were not profitable. Uh, so one is the Ant Man, Eternals, Black Widow. And uh, Incredible Hulk. Really? The Incredible Hulk? Yep. Would have thought he would... Um, I mean, this is based on this uh, very Hulk simple Hulk. heuristic of yeah, 2.5 sure. KPI. So obviously we don't have all the financials and maybe even out there we can find some more exact data points. But the purpose of this exercise for me was to A, learn how to quickly judge what a good movie looks like in terms of the money. And the second is just to see if on average Marvel was above average here. And definitely this looks super, super good. And I mean, all of these movies together from 2008 to 2023 um, grossed $29 billion in sales. So if we go back to the Disney's $4 billion investment back in 2008, I think it's pretty clear that Disney has made a pretty good choice uh basically with this investment even though it was heavily criticized at the time mm. and that's mm. without all the streaming stuff that i don't know whether you're going to touch on as well but um yeah hmm. pretty healthy yep so 
approximately 11 billion of profits um comes like from marvel during this time so uh that's basically my biggest story in terms of the numbers one other thing i was interested to understand was what is usually the split of the revenue um what's usually the split of the revenue um for a movie so how much what percentage comes from um the ticket sales and what percentage comes from other things so 40 percent is theaters and then 35 percent right now is streaming 15 percent tv and then the rest is other things like merchandising and the rest so i thought merch interested. would be higher actually yeah me too but apparently not what about the video game side of things um don't have this for that specifically no um because i feel like those when they launch now particularly like the latest spider-man one the hype is just unreal and obviously the the ticket price for those is is getting seems to be creeping up and up um maybe one for us to touch on another teardown sort of video game industry side of things yeah don't have this here didn't look up but yeah that's it from my side i don't have any more numbers to share there's some bloody big numbers. I think they might be some of the biggest numbers by some way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Biggest profit, but uh, profit percentages. But um, Oh, by the way, one more thing. So you, I had a look at how much revenue still, like Marvel still produces comic books. So how much um, basically they grossed in sales. So apparently in 2021, Marvel made $280 million from just comic sales alone. Wow. So that's not nothing either, right? No. That business on its own, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the profit is in there, but um, I, on, I honestly had no idea that that was still uh, as, big as, it, as big as it is. Yeah. Um, but another fun fact, apparently in 1973, Marvel Comics sold 300% more copies than they it did in 2013, so 40 years later. Well, I guess the technology was all uh, <laughs> on paper at that point, didn't yeah. have the option. <laughs> so should we do a little... Um, so you remember our last uh, company that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So how much revenue did you say uh, did Marvel make with comic books? 280 million, right? Yeah, in 2013. Okay, does um, Warby Parker make Sorry, more 2021. revenue? <laughs> uh, Warby Parker, um, more. So, Warby, so now Warby Parker, I think, made more than Marvel in comic sales. Tom, what's your take? Um, I just just to be contrarian, I'm gonna say less. I can't mm -hmm. really remember. I know I know they're gonna be close. Yeah, they are like in the ballpark of double. So Warrior Park actually makes a little bit more than double of the revenue of uh, only comic books. But another designer's favorite, Monotype, whole company Monotype makes um, pretty much the same about 300 million so we have a what marvelous comic book uh business is the same size as monotype full business if you'd told me 
if we out of the context of the discussion about MCU and the cinema world, um, I would have had the comics being actually way, way, way above uh, a single uh, typography business. Um, even though I, you know, don't see it as like a big industry anymore, it still exists. And it's Marvel, for God's sake. Um, so I, I'm actually quite surprised that they're as close as they are um, in retrospect. Yeah. Crazy numbers. Crazy, um, as so always. Is, so what a run there on it. feels like every time a new Marvel film comes out, it just busts new records. Um, it kind of peaked with that. Is it Affinity War? It was one of the like Avengers films, wasn't it? That was like... For the best-selling one? Yeah, it's, I think the second highest of all time is Avenger. Yeah. Um, just nuts. Haven't seen it. Um, much to a lot of my friends' disdain. But um, how can they keep this run going? It feels like things have tapered off a little bit. I think it's mm -hmm. a good way for us maybe to segue into By specifically the threats and opportunities might be for for Marvel Studio moving forward. Um, how can they maintain this incredible uh, record? Um don't know who would like to go first, maybe on the sort of threats side of things for um it looks like Alan might be up for that first. I'm actually giving you a France oh, yeah. <laughs> a stage. Um, Any thoughts, France? I think threats is definitely um how do people consume content? So mm. that's definitely if we still have biggest revenue stream box office sales, so actual um, um, cinemas, then that's definitely a threat for, for any company in this business. So will people actually go to the, uh, go to the cinema to consume that? Maybe um, superhero movies are reasons that you go into uh, actual movie because you want to enjoy this masterpiece in... Um, with good quality audio and a huge screen, right? So there are some movies that you purposefully go. Like, for example, me, the last time I went into movies was um, Avatar. And I not, I'm not a big movie um, like visitor. I rarely go to movie theater. So that might be a threat, but also maybe not because they are still in a... Um, in a type of movie that might bring people to the movie theaters at the same time i think that superhero movies are still so special that it's easy to also get bored of this so superhero fatigue after hearing that there are 32 movies made by marvel i think that's the biggest downside or that's the biggest threat threat that people mm. just get bored of this content and maybe that's what gave them the boost all of a sudden you would have awesome superhero movies that you could watch and that would not be the weird movies that you knew from earlier. Um, and now people maybe got fed up. So I would say maybe we have a similar, um, maybe I have a, we have a similar situation again as we had the first superhero fatigue in Marvel's uh, history after the uh, World War II. So in the 50s where people didn't want to see that. Apart from this, yeah, mm, no real threats come to mind. The um, 
the oversaturation one, and we'll move on to to Alan if you've got um, anything different to that, is is interesting for me on a creative level. It's concerning, right? Like I do enjoy cinema. Um, not a superhero person, not massively anti it, but it, it it is a bit foreboding of like you know once you find a formula that works and is a guaranteed money maker and it just takes over the summer, right? It's happened with Barbie as well. Um, that the creativity in cinema might start waning. Martin Scorsese was very open in saying, like, these aren't really films. It's more like going to a theme park. He's he's since said those comments were taken out of context. Um, but I do think there's a foreboding to that and that people may get a little uh, fed up of this. Conversely, though, I think the genius of Marvel and the way they do things is that the although it's the narrative is usually around a superhero, the type of film actually varies quite a bit. So sometimes it's a heist movie and sometimes it's a thriller. Sometimes it's a comedy. So I do, I do feel like they bring a really interesting creative dimension that, that mm-hmm. maybe they can keep reinventing it and that they are different flavors. You know, the guardians appeal to me because it's more uh, of a comedy. Um, I started watching one of the um, Captain America ones and didn't really like that kind of thriller aspect so much. So I, I think they are very clever uh, on that front. And the 32 films in, Franz, you said earlier they've got 500 characters. That's like Pokemon level <laughs> characters in their back They pocket. even have more now. If they want There's, to, it feels like, yeah. oh. I think there nuts. are like um, 800 but, yeah. something. Please yeah, write as a comment how many characters they have. But I think I read something uh, of 800 characters. Wow. I'm sure. I'm sure. A few of them are a little, little lame, maybe. But um, yeah, I didn't really appreciate plus, that. Yeah, I have it in my notes. So many to fall back on. Um, Franz, uh, sorry, Alan. Um, anything to add on that point, or any other threats that you think we should be aware of? No, but I would go into opportunities if I may. Yeah, sure. Um, VR, very obvious one. Mm. So, like experiencing action movie in a VR, high quality VR headset at home could be even a better experience than theater. You can maybe even be interacting with it. So I think that's a huge next wave for Marvel. And a lot of these content character-based businesses. And that's why also when we get to buy, sell, hold, I would be on the buying side still because this has such a huge upside that I think it's going to revolutionize this whole space. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think technology is probably the biggest one, isn't it? And we talked about the maybe cinema becoming less popular uh, for for various reasons, affordability being one at the moment. Um, But obviously they're having to profit share with that. There are additional costs with distribution and marketing and things like that. Whereas if you are owning the platform, Disney Plus, and you are going straight into eyeballs, um, you know, there's benefits from a... um, from a um, markup perspective, um, from 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 going that route, uh, I, I hope we don't end up completely there because um, I do I do enjoy the the shared experience, but that's probably going to be rose tinted glasses in twenty thirty years. Um, so yeah, technology. One of the opportunities for me is it still feels like there's a lot of interesting potential for crossover. So Disney now. Obviously, they own 20th Century Fox as well. Um, and 
I don't know the kind of Disney thing. You f- you feel like there's there's some interesting crossovers, maybe mm. in the way they do shorts and series, and even in the video games world that that might be something they can explore because they are just they keep acquiring interesting IP, um, and obviously they have managed to reacquire um, some of the licenses. I think Spider Man. I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, Franz. That's only recently come out of Sony's ownership, I think, or or there's there's been something happen with that that um will will free up Spider Man to appear more in the in the universe. So uh, again, um, and then you know new new demographics. They, they obviously were criticised um, quite heavily back in the day for the lack of diversity in the films, but also the filmmaking. Um, but then we saw things like Black Panther really connecting with people, um, and it feels like okay, culturally maybe there are other angles and other um, ways that they can reach into other communities and other um, territories through stuff that resonates with that with that with that audience a bit more, which I would think would be great from a storytelling perspective as well to bring a bit of bit of something new to it. Um, I certainly feel like there's more opportunity than threat um, as well. So I guess that's an um, interesting segue into um, the sort of buy, sell, hold. Alan, you've already shown your hands, but do you mind expanding on that a little bit? If um... There's nothing more to expand on. It's because just I see, as you said, it's I see more opportunities than threats, mm. um, depending on the price, of course, but I just see, let's say, more positive future than not. Yeah. France? Yeah. I think so too. I mean, what this is still a creative business, and I think it's about finding a new way how this is going to be exciting again. Because it seems that they have passed the threshold of creating another Marvel movie, and that's also um, going to be awesome. So I think that's gone, but I trust that with the um, powerhouse that they have in the back of creating content and what they have already done. I also think that they can overcome that and create a type of movie or maybe a, a way of delivering the movie that will, um, yeah, that will be the next level for them and bring them back to, um, yeah, to lead this this market again as they already did. So I would also go into buy also because i think entertainment businesses are um businesses that will um strive in general agreed echo both your points there yeah um not usual caveat not financial advice entertainment purposes (laughs) only in an entertainment focused podcast um i think we're there I think yep. uh, really interesting. I, I really enjoy these ones where we go a, a little more into the entertainment space, a bit like we did with Tour de France. Um, yeah, I, I learned a, a whole a bunch um, um, in the process of this and both of you today. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll shortlist another one at some point. Yeah, same here. But if you want to learn more, you can check out on our mini seven-day MBA, which is a seven-day email course which you can sign up for on d.mba slash mini minus mba. And if you sign up for it, you will receive seven emails over the course of seven days, each of them teaching you one business concept relevant for designers. And you can start gaining your business confidence as part of your um, complement to listening to this podcast. 
Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Franz. See you in the next one. Bye, Thank bro. you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.